Welcome to the Best of Making Sense. This is Sam Harris. In this series, we re-air some of the most popular episodes of the Making Sense podcast. These are conversations that we think you'll find just as relevant today as when they were originally released. Okay, well, today is a deep dive into wealth inequality and the underlying problem of our notion of meritocracy. Wealth inequality is something that I've been worried about for quite some time. I think I first started speaking and writing about it in 2010, about a year or so after the financial crisis. I wrote a couple of blog posts. I think the first was a New Year's resolution for the rich, and then how rich is too rich. And um, it's come up a few times on the podcast before. I never really questioned the norm of meritocracy, however. And I haven't really thought much about the way our system of higher education has become a perpetual motion machine of inequality. But my guest today on the podcast has. Today I'm speaking with Daniel Markovitz, and his book is The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite. And Daniel is a professor of law at Yale, and as you'll hear, he's thought a lot about these issues. We talk about the nature of inequality in the U.S., the disappearance of the leisure class, the way the rich now tend to work harder, at least as measured by time, than anyone else, the difference between labor and capital as sources of inequality. Uh, We talk about the shrinking middle class, the attendant deaths of despair in the U.S. We talk about the different social norms among the elites and the working class, things like out-of-wedlock birth, divorce, etc. We talk about the flawed notion of being self-made and the illusion that anyone has earned their advantages. There's a lot here. You might find it a little dense certainly in the beginning, but I thought the conversation was fascinating. I learned a lot. Looking back on my old blog posts of 10 years ago, and I noticed that in talking about the consequences of automation and growing wealth inequality and people's resistance to redistribution, I asked the rhetorical question, would anyone want to live in a country that has just minted its first trillionaire and there's 30% unemployment. Well, at the time, that was a cartoon example. At the moment, that outcome is absolutely foreseeable. So that's just to say this is a conversation whose time has come. And now I bring you Daniel Markovitz. I'm here with Daniel Markovitz. Daniel, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've written this fairly incendiary book, The Meritocracy Trap. I really want to run through your, your entire argument here because it's, it has the virtues of being both quite consequential, you know, whether right or wrong, whatever we decide about your argument, it, the consequences are enormous, and it's highly counterintuitive. And so I'll let you lay it out here, but you, you've written a book 
really against this notion of meritocracy. And, and, and it's interesting, we, this word was originally coined in a somewhat ironic or, or derogatory vein, but it, it was very soon thereafter rechristened as an obvious norm. And so when, when we hear about meritocracy, you know, really for my entire lifetime, there's never been a problem with it. It's just that the problem has always been that we haven't actually achieved it. And the problem is that, that there are people who are every bit as talented as the people who succeed, but they don't succeed because they weren't given the right opportunities. But you're arguing that the very norm of achieving a meritocracy is somehow flawed, and that any socioeconomic reward that's based on, on this notion of merit is itself unjust and is leading to a kind of new caste system. So perhaps let's just start with this core claim. In what sense is meritocracy itself and the notion of merit itself the problem? Sure. So, so let's start just by giving a quick and intuitive definition of what a meritocracy is. It's when people get ahead based on their own accomplishments rather than on, say, their parents' social class or their race or their gender. And as you suggested a moment ago, it's very hard to object to that idea. It seems like that idea would give a society a capable and competent and engaged elite, and it seems like that idea would give everybody a fair shot at success. And the early meritocrats, especially in the United States in the 1960s, and we can talk about them in a little more detail later, very much embraced that thought. They thought that meritocracy was a way of breaking established caste orders surrounding heredity, breeding, race, gender, religion. And for a while, meritocracy did function in that way, because natural talent is not the property of any one race or gender or caste. But then what happened is that the elite that was made by meritocracy, the people who themselves got ahead by being really good at tests, really good at school, really hardworking, accomplishing a lot, turned out to be incredibly good at training their children and to have an immense appetite for investing in their children's education. And they now so dramatically out-train and out-educate everybody else in society that not just poor families, but middle-class families can't keep up. And because education works, it now turns out that the people who, in this technical sense, accomplish the most, who have the highest test scores, the best grades, are the same as the children of the rich meritocrats of the previous generation. And so in this way, what meritocracy has done is it was invented as the handmaiden of equality of opportunity, but it's become an enormous obstacle to opportunity in the United States today. I want to get into the, the problem specific to higher education and then the process by which people seek to get into elite institutions, because that really is at the center of the problem, at least on your account. But before we get there, let's just talk about the nature of inequality I and mean, just what is the status quo at this point, and perhaps we should focus on the U.S. I mean, I know this is a global problem, but within the U.S., you point out that we have a, a kind of inequality that is that more resembles that found in a country like India than in, in a country like France. So give us a picture of, of what inequality is like at this point. Yeah, so we have two trends happening in the U.S. at the same time. 
And I think one of the things that made the book controversial is that it emphasizes both of these trends. So one trend is falling poverty. There's a lot of poverty in the U.S. And if you have my private politics, it's morally unconscionable how much poverty there is. There's more poverty than in other rich countries. But although I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that poverty is the most morally pressing economic issue of the age, it's not the distinctive one. So the poverty rate in the United States today, depending on how you measure it, is between a half and a fifth of what it was in 1960. And 1960 is thought of by the left and the right both as a period of shared prosperity. But poverty then was much, much deeper and wider than it is today. Mm. At the same time as we have falling poverty in this country, we also have rising concentrated wealth. And the richest 1% of households in America today take home about twice as big a share of national income as they did in 1960. So you have both falling poverty and rising wealth. And inequality has moved, as it were, up the income scale so that there is now more economic inequality within the richest 5% of the population than in the population as a whole. Right. That is to say, the shrinking gap between the middle class and the poor dampens overall inequality compared to the massively rising gap between the merely rich and the super rich. And then there's one other thing that's going on that is also controversial, or that I claim is going on that's controversial, which is that the sources of the very top incomes have changed. So that by my calculation today, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the total income of the top 1% doesn't come from capital, but rather comes from labor. So that the rich have become the working rich or a superordinate working class. Whereas for most of human history, if you wanted to know how poor a person was, you would ask how hard or how long they work. Whereas today, if you want to know how rich a person is, you ask how hard or how long they work. And that's also transformed the ideology of inequality in, I think, very damaging ways. Yeah, there are many interesting distinctions in there. So let's just take this one piece of the issue between disparities in in work and in capital. So your claim here is somewhat at odds with the much-celebrated thesis of Thomas Piketty, right, that he published this book that everyone bought, and I imagine few read a few years ago, where he was arguing that because the gains that accrue to capital increase at a greater rate than those that accrue to labor, the real driver of wealth inequality in first world societies, he wasn't focused exclusively on the U.S., is the distinction between people who have capital, right, who have investments and, you know, are therefore, you know, making money on their, on their stock portfolio, say, and everyone else who has to work for a living, you know, at any salary. But you're, you're saying that the truly rich here, first of all, they, they're, they're not merely a leisure class. I mean, this is not an episode of Downton Abbey we're living through. They work harder as measured in just time than basically anyone else. And that is the source of the most excruciating inequality, in, in this case, in, in the top, essentially the Gini coefficient of the top 10%. Right, right. So let's talk just separately, briefly, about labor hours and then about the sources of income. So in 1979, if you were in the top fifth of the hourly wage distribution, 
you were about two-thirds as likely as someone in the bottom fifth to work over 50 hours a week. By 2006, if you were in the top fifth, you were more than twice as likely as someone in the bottom fifth to work over 50 hours a week. Hmm. So in the roughly 30 years at the end of the last millennium, the relationship between high wages and long hours reversed. It used to be the low-paid worked the long hours, and by 2006, the high-paid worked the long hours. And if you look at finer slices, between about 1940 and about 2010, the top 1% added, roughly speaking, six to eight hours a week to its average work week, whereas the bottom 60% lost maybe eight hours a week from its average work week. So that's a shift of hours worked away from the bottom 60% to the top 1% of 16 hours a week, which is two regulation work days a week. And I want to be clear, and I hope we come back to this, the reason why the middle and working class aren't working such long hours is not that they're lazy and don't want to work. It's that the labor market has been restructured so that there aren't enough jobs. And even during our recent period of very low unemployment, we've also had very low labor force participation. So that it's true that not many people have been seeking work and not getting it, but many people haven't been seeking work. Hmm. So that's the story of hours worked. It's what uh, sociologists of work call the time divide. Then there's a separate story about where the rich get their income from. And this is the point at which, as you suggested, Piketty's and my analyses depart. Now, it's important to understand that both his effect and my effect could be going on at the same time. Yeah. And that they, they'd compete only, as it were, on the margin of explanation. So it could both be that those with capital are getting richer and also that those with super skills and super labor are getting richer. And the question is just which of these effects dominates the other in explaining the overall rise of top incomes. And it's important actually to read Piketty's book because Piketty himself makes quite clear that in the United States, in contradistinction to Western Europe, until 2000, until 2000, top incomes were driven by rising labor income. So Piketty and I agree about that. Mm. And the only place at which we disagree is what happened since 2000. And we disagree there for two reasons, principally. And I'm going to try to put the disagreement in a way that tries to be fair as between us. And if we want to get into it, we can get into it. But, but one question is, how should one categorize the income of the very highest paid workers in management and finance. So these are CEOs, top executives, hedge fund people, investment bankers. Piketty inclines to categorize some portion of their income as capital rather than labor. I view their income as labor income. The reason why Piketty views their income as capital income is that he thinks, in effect, that nobody's work could be worth that much. And it's important to understand how much income there is here. So in a recent year, the five highest paid employees of the S&P 1500, so 7,500 workers overall, captured income equal to 10% of the total profits of the S&P 1500. So these people are capturing quantities of income that matter macroeconomically. I think of it as labor income because these are people who bring nothing but their own labor to their employment contract. They don't 
own the companies they manage. The hedge fund people don't own the assets that they invest. Instead, what they do is they sell their skills. And I have a story about technological change that tries to explain why it is that counterintuitively, we've created an economy in which those skills could be incredibly valuable. So that's one source of difference. The other big source of difference is that I treat certain categories of pass-through income, so this is income owned, earned by people who own their own businesses, and certain categories of capital gains. This is income captured by people who invent things, start big companies, and have founder shares as labor income, whereas Piketty right. treats it as capital income. I, again, believe it's labor income because I think, once again, what these people are contributing to the economic value of their ventures is their own ideas, their own work, their own labor. And depending on how you look at the balance of these things, you get from Piketty's number, which is that the top 1% get roughly half of their, little under half of their income from labor, to my number, which is that the top 1% get between two-thirds and three-quarters of their income from labor. That's a material difference, but just to close this out, the most striking difference is between either Piketty's estimate and mine, so either half or three quarters. And what was true in, say, 1910, when the top 1% would have gotten a sixth or an eighth of its income from labor, or even 1960, the top 1% would have gotten a quarter of its income from labor. Right. Well, may maybe it's a distinction without a real difference, because it the different norms around work and you know time spent working are unaffected by how you class the source of income. So you take somebody like I don't know Mark Zuckerberg. You know, so I don't know right. Mark. I've never met him. I know many people who know him, but I, ha I have no inside knowledge of you know of his work habits. But I would bet a fair amount of money that he works considerably more than a forty-hour work week, and also his wealth is born not principally of his salary, whatever it is. You know, I, I would assume his salary is right. nominal. It's a lot, but yeah. it's not $100 billion. Yeah, it's, it is nominal compared to his actual wealth. And so he's, he's making money based on the fact that he owns whatever it is, 20% of Facebook. And so that's, you know, you could call that capital or you could call that the returns on labor. But the reality is he's almost certainly a workaholic and therefore very likely believes that he deserves everything he's gotten. You know, he didn't inherit this wealth. He built it. He created a, whatever you think of Facebook, an enormously influential piece of technology that has attracted the, the attention of half of humanity. And he's rewarded for that. And he's, you know, part of the system you're describing in terms of the advantages accruing to an educated elite to some degree. I mean, he, he stepped off that hamster wheel pretty early. He got to Harvard and then dropped out to start Facebook. So on some level, this is part of your story. I mean, I, although I guess you would probably view much of the, the success we see in Silicon Valley to be a bit of a sideshow to your main thesis, right? Because you're, you're, you're more talking about people who go the whole route through the academy and come out and work for Goldman Sachs or in some context like that, where they're not reaping these outside rewards based on their winner-take-all, one-off, brilliant idea. 
they're actually part of a, a much larger system of credentialing and social signaling that becomes this the so-called meritocracy, where people are grinding away for, again, lo- very long hours. But I would imagine in the case of someone like Zuckerberg or any, any other founder like him who, who's getting very rich, they may wish they didn't feel the need to work as much as they do. But many of these people are doing what they love or what they're addicted to. They're not you know, somebody who's several rungs from the top at a place like Goldman Sachs, just being ground down by 90-hour work weeks because that's the way the machine runs. So is there a distinction to make there, or, or is this, or basically these are the same group of people we're talking about? Yeah, no, I think there is a distinction to make there. Now, of course, there are lots of people now who go to work at Google or Facebook or Apple or venture capital firms in Silicon Valley who are also working on other people's projects right. rather than their own. But you know, your underlying suggestion about someone like Zuckerberg does generalize so that in 1984, for example, purely inherited fortunes outweighed self-made fortunes in the Forbes 400 by 10 to 1. But today, self-made fortunes outnumber the inherited ones so Mm. that we've reversed even there who thinks of themselves. Now, self-made is a term of art, obviously, but it's different from being Zuckerberg from being, say, uh, one of the Koch brothers who inherited from their parents. I do think that there is an important political psychological difference between my view and Piketty's. And uh, this, I think, also accounts for some of the controversy surrounding the meritocracy trap, which is this. The capital-intensive account of rising inequality focuses the blame for an inequality that most people think is a bad idea at a group of people and a threshold wealth and a social position that is different from the group of people who are the book's natural audience. So the people who read Piketty are university professors, elite journalists, management consultants, lawyers, doctors, the broad reading elite. And Piketty's story absolves them of responsibility for inequality. Whereas my story says that them, namely me, us, and the institutions that we serve and that have made us, are at the very core of the machine that is producing more and more inequality and blocking middle and working class people from opportunity. And I don't know if that's a a virtue or not of the theory, but it does explain why there's a way in which a story like the capital story is quite comfortable for the elite left, whereas a story like my story is quite uncomfortable for the elite left. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's interesting to consider what, where these various tiers economically should be drawn. I guess they could also be region-specific. I mean, so, I mean what do you consider middle-class what does the field consider middle class in general? And then how do you think about middle class in a city like Manhattan or San Francisco? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good you know, a question. And uh, it actually is a, it's a complicated sort of conceptual question and actually turns out to be a very complicated flat empirical question. So that often people think of people as middle class 
as those between something like the 40th and the 80th percentile of the income distribution. But of course, that varies by city and by region, and, and what it takes to lead a certain kind of lifestyle varies very much by city. The practical or data complication there is that there are lots of things in a city like New York or San Francisco that are obviously much, much more expensive than elsewhere. Housing is a big example, of course. Private schools are another big example. But then there are other features of elite or even upper middle class life that are actually cheaper in in New York City than elsewhere. So certain kinds of foods, certain kinds of entertainment, certain kinds of restaurants are actually cheaper or easier to get in New York than elsewhere. So it becomes quite complicated to figure out exactly what lifestyle bundle and at what price it takes to be in the middle class or above the middle class socioeconomically. I tend to focus on the top 1% and then the 4% that surrounds them in the sense that these are the 4% or the group that credibly can claim it might one day be in the 1%. Hmm. And so that's the group that I'm focusing the analysis on. And that's partly driven by the fact that that's where almost all of the income growth in America has happened over the past 30 years. So it makes sense to look at this narrow slice, although in another sense, it's a very narrow slice. And focusing on them ignores distinctions between somebody who's making $150,000 a year and somebody who's making $85,000 a year. Both are above median household income, but they're in very different positions and neither of them is close to the 1%. Right, right. I think we should at some point drill down on the difference between the, the merely rich and the super rich because those orders of magnitude are counterintuitive for people. And it's just interesting to think about the significance of that kind of wealth stratification. It's odd to be focused merely on the top 1%, but it's, you know, the difference between the 0.01% and the, the merely 1% is so enormous at this point that you're not at all talking about the same thing. So is there more to say about the middle class here? You know, from hearing your argument, it seems that the middle class is, in some ways, the hardest hit here. What are your thoughts about the middle class before we, we focus on the, the problems of wealth? Yeah, so there's a, a sort of a straight empirical economic phenomenon, which is very striking, which is if you ask about children's odds of becoming richer than their parents, so this idea of sort of economic growth within the family lineage, that each generation is better off than the one before. Mm-hmm. For the kids that were born in 1940, basically all of them were going to end up richer than their parents. You had to get to roughly the 95th percentile of the income distribution before children were not almost certain to become richer than their parents. But for the group born in 1980, really only the poorest were certain to be richer than their parents. And if you look at the drop in the chance of getting richer than your parents, so by how much did that chance fall between 1940 and 1980, it fell by the most between the 30th and the 90th percentile of the income distribution. So the broad middle class, if you think of people below the 30th percentile as roughly speaking 
the poor, and people above the 90th as roughly speaking the rich. The broad middle class had the biggest drop-off in its odds of becoming richer than its parents, so that the sort of future-looking hope of the economy moved away from the middle class. Right. And at the same time, the charismatic center of the economy and the culture moved away from the middle class. And, and this is a, not a flat economic phenomenon. You know, this has to do with how much housing costs. It, it used to be that a house in a really, really fancy neighborhood would cost maybe two or three times what a, an average house would cost. Now it costs 20 or 30 times what an average house costs. It used to be that in America, the most expensive car you could buy was a Cadillac. It cost twice what a Chevy cost. Now there are lots of cars that cost 10 or 20 times what the median car costs. The same is true for kitchen appliances. The same is true for meals out, for bottles of wine, for which supermarket you shop at. It used to be everybody shopped at Safeway. Now you can shop at Whole Foods or you can shop at Walmart, and they have very different feels, looks, and products. One thing I looked into, the French Laundry, the California fancy restaurant, mm. and Taco Bell don't have a single ingredient in common. <laughs> That's hilarious. Not even the salt. Right. Not even the salt. And so what you're getting is a stratification of all parts of life around this income divide. And the part of life that captures the attention of the culture of the media is the rich part. Whereas it used to be the part of life that captured the attention of the culture was the middle class part. And so that's another kind of demotion, now a, a sort of sociological, cultural, psychological demotion for the same group that has taken the biggest hit in its economic opportunities. And that's extremely damaging to flourishing and to politics. Well, much of this is relative, of course, because as you point out, there's less poverty than there's ever been, right? And when you look at what the the average lower middle class or even, you know, slightly below that person has access to compared to, you know, what previous generations had. I mean, you just take something like a smartphone, right? Well, it's just this is a piece of magic if you brought it back to the um even in even the late twentieth century. Right. I mean, it's just this is you're walking around with something in your pocket that not even the president of the United States had access to in the 80s or even 90s. And I'm sure there are some technocrats or uh, you know, techno utopians who would say there's nothing wrong with growing inequality per se, as long as the, the floor is rising for everyone. And there, there's some sign that the floor is rising for everyone. What, what would you say to that? Well, I think the first thing I say is that there's, there's a sense in which what, what you say is, is even more true than your example suggests, like the smartphone. You know, I don't know, did you ever drive a, a Chrysler K car? Uh, no, I have not. No. So, you know, a, a car in the 1980s, those were terrible cars. Mm. Whereas a, a Toyota Corolla today is a great car. Right. It's safe, it's quiet, it's powerful, it's comfortable in a way in which almost no consumer good from 40, 50 years ago was. 
And so it's not just new inventions, it's familiar things have become a lot better. On the other hand, even though it is true that poverty is down and that middle-class consumption has continued to rise, it's also true that other forms or markers of human flourishing have not been rising. So if you think of Anne Case's and Angus Deaton's demographic work on the fact that there is rising mortality and falling life expectancy Mm. in middle-class Americans, this is astonishing. We have falling life expectancy in a group, a large group of the population without war, without economic collapse, and yet life expectancies are falling. And the causes of the falling life expectancy are overwhelmingly overdose, addiction, suicide, smoking, heart disease, and other diseases associated with overeating. They're forms of direct or indirect self-harm, really. And the reason for that, I think, is that this goes back to the meritocracy point that we started with. We've constructed a social and economic order with massive structural exclusion. The the reason it's hard to get ahead as a middle-class child or adult in America today is that the system is rigged against you. The education system is rigged against you as a child and rigged against your children. The labor market requires you to have fancy training and fancy degrees that you can't afford to get. And then meritocracy recharacterizes this structural exclusion as an individual failure to measure up. It then says, and by the way, the reason you haven't gotten ahead is that you weren't good enough, you didn't work hard enough, you weren't virtuous enough. And so the layering of this sort of profound moral insult on top of an economic injury produces then the forms of self-harm that reduce life expectancy. And the reduced life expectancy, which really is demographically unprecedented, it just doesn't happen that you have lower life expectancy without war, disease, economic collapse, shows just how damaging this form of exclusion and inequality really is. And no amount of stories of better consumer goods or cell phones or even more square feet per person in housing can make up for the harms done by that set of structural exclusions and moral insults. Yeah, there are many differences in, just take this health distinction between the wealthy and even the middle class. I think at some point you say that the life expectancy difference between the 1% and the middle class exceeds what what would be true if we cured cancer, mm-hmm. which is a fairly arresting idea. And there's just there's so many other sociological differences in these cohorts. I mean, you look at the rate of divorce or, you know, having children out of wedlock, all of those things have enormous consequences too. I mean, you know, divorce and having a child out of wedlock, these are variables that are almost synonymous with economic hardship at minimum, a serious economic penalty and, and also an opportunity penalty with respect to the kids and, and their, their ability to go to good schools and, and all the rest. How else do you think about the difference in, there's a kind of a non-virtuous or virtuous, depending on whether you're benefiting from it, cycle here. Once, like, once things are going well, you know, everything tends to be going better 
how else do you think about the difference between the elites, as I think you tend to call them, and everyone else? Yeah, let me just say, first of all, the, the effects that you're describing are sort of so enormous that if you don't look twice, you don't believe they're real. So, you know, in 1970, out-of-marriage births accounted for less than 10% of the births to women at all levels of education. Today, women with a high school education or less, so without college degrees, that's two-thirds of women, have over 50% of their children outside of marriage, whereas women with a college education or more have only 3% of their children outside of marriage. Right. So this is not a small effect or phenomenon. And I think the way I think about it is that life in capitalism, and particularly life in a meritocracy, is hard. It's a constant struggle in competition with others. No institution or person gives you the basic things that you need to flourish without your fighting to get them. And that means that success under those circumstances requires enormous amounts of support early in life and deep into adulthood. And that support is incredibly expensive. It's expensive in time, it's expensive in money, it's expensive in expertise. And that means that grown-ups who are struggling themselves are not in a good position to provide the advantages for their children that the children will need to compete in the next generation. Whereas grown-ups who have abundance themselves are in a much, much better position to do it. And, and, and that explains how inequality that in some sense looks like it's narrowly economic based on income or wealth can become comprehensive, can reach into family structure, childbearing. It reaches into religious practices. It reaches into consumption practices. It reaches into exercise. You know, 80 years ago, prosperous was a euphemism for comfortably overweight, whereas today the rich are almost exclusively extremely fit because they pay trainers and gyms to exercise, whereas the obesity epidemic that this country faces is overwhelmingly concentrated in the middle and working classes. Again, Expensive food is expensive, and cheap, tasty food is cheap. And so this is a way in which economic inequality can inscribe itself even in the bodies of the rich and the poor. And it's extremely damaging to our broader social order. Yeah, so on some level, there's, there are changing norms here which are also part of the, the problem. So you just take something like fitness. It once was the case that you could be obese and smoke a cigar and you were the caricature of a rich guy. Now, if your midlife crisis entails training for the, an Ironman competition, you're the caricature of the, the super-driven CEO, i.e. rich guy. But that's, you know, the money can be constant there. We're talking about a, a new social norm. So I'm wondering what you think explains that. And also, I guess, 
I don't know the explanation for the change in, in out-of-wedlock birth, but again, that's also another kind of norm here around sexuality, which it seems to me could at least be orthogonal to changes in objective economic circumstance and opportunity. Yeah, I think it could be. I think, in fact, they're not in the following sense. If you live in an aristocratic system in which breeding itself birthright is sufficient to secure the success of children and keep the family dynasty going, it doesn't matter very much how the aristocratic adults raise their children or spend their time because their children will be privileged. Hmm. But in a meritocracy, one of the most important productive activities is training children. And so one of the reasons why elite families live these hyper-conservative lives, although their official ideology around sex is one of great liberalism, is that they realize that the success of their children depends on an orderly, work-driven, training-driven domestic space. And so they produce it, and it has actually very bad gender effects within the rich families, which is that rich women earn much, much less than their rich male partners, even though the official gender ideology of the elite is one of economic equality between men and women. On the other hand, the jobs that have been most attacked, most aggressively destroyed by the transformations in the labor market, that accompany this kind of inequality are the jobs that traditionally middle-class and working-class men did. And so working-class and middle-class men have had their earning power most harmed and their social status most harmed by these transformations in work and labor. So that now, if you survey working-class families and households, they say that it is important that husbands out-earn wives or that men out-earn women But in fact, in the bottom third of the income distribution, women out-earn men in households. Mm. And this dramatically undermines the sort of ideology of marriage and domestic life because, again, in a gender hierarchical society, this makes it hard to find marriageable men. It makes men uncomfortable in households with wives who earn more. And so when you overlay the form of inequality that we're seeing, the economic inequality that we're seeing on a gender hierarchy, you get both extreme conservatism in the elite and the breakdown of the traditional family outside of the elite. Mm. And obviously, a lot of other things are going on at the same time, and it would be crazy to try to reduce so complicated phenomena to this one line of explanation. But it's not that the economic story has nothing to say about these wide social ramifications. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So now, what do you think about uh, universal basic income as a solution here, or as part of a solution? So I think it's a, it, it may, we may be seeing that it's becoming the central question of our time, actually. I used to be incredibly afraid of universal basic income for the following reason. As soon as this country, any country, but this country in particular, establishes a meaningful universal basic income, the pressure on who belongs and who doesn't 
will just grow and grow and grow. And the questions that are tearing us apart around membership and immigration will get more and more fraught. Because imagine if an entitlement to be here qualified you for $2,000 a month. Mm -hmm. And imagine what that would do to our politics. So it's a very risky and dangerous idea. On the other hand, one of the things that we are seeing is that the market, as we've created it, is one, just not adequate to buffering people against totally undeserved, catastrophic economic dislocation. Two, doesn't pay people in a way that matches their social importance. And so we need to find a way to separate out a person's entitlement to consume and to have a dignified lifestyle from the vagaries of their ability to capture income on the market. Right. And that's what universal basic income does. So in that sense, I think we're seeing just how important the idea is in the world that we have now built. Although this question of what it will do to our politics around membership and identity is not one that I think we can afford to take lightly. It's a, it's a really dangerous idea for that reason. Interesting. Well, so there's a political problem here. You talk about the way in which inequality and, and the self-perpetuating nature of meritocracy leads to you know, political populism and, in our case, the rise of Trump. You get lots of nativist anger and the politics of personality and distrust of institutions and expertise. I don't know if you want to summarize that further, but it seems like it's part of the story as to how our politics became recently so toxic. Yeah. Can, can I maybe just sort of, talking like a lawyer here, but just lay a brief factual predicate sure. for, for this set of observations, which is the, you know, a poor public school, a public school in a poor district in America spends maybe eight to $10,000 per pupil per year. A middle-class public school spends maybe twelve to $15,000 per pupil per year. A really rich public school in a town like Scarsdale, New York, where the median household income is over $200,000 a year, spends about $30,000 per pupil per year. And the richest and fanciest private schools in America, 80% of whose kids come from households that make over $200,000 a year, spend maybe $75,000 per pupil per year. So that there's massive inequality in educational investment. This means that if you look at a place like Yale, where I teach, or Harvard, or Princeton, or Stanford, there are more kids in those universities whose parents are in the top 1% of the income distribution than in the entire bottom half. And if you took the difference between what's invested in a typical middle-class kid's education and what's invested in a typical one-percenter kid's education and took that difference every year and put it into the S&P 500 to give it to the rich kid as an inheritance hmm. when her parents died, because that's the way aristocrats used to transmit privilege down through the generations, that sum would exceed $10 million per child. 
So why am I saying this? I'm saying this because it gives you a sense for the enormity of the educational inequality that exists in our society between not just or not even primarily the middle class and the poor, but between the rich and the middle class. And then if you look at the jobs that pay the most money at elite law firms, at elite investment banks, elite management jobs, which go to graduates of elite business schools, all these jobs, specialist medical doctors, all these jobs almost require people who do them to have gone through some version of this fancy education. So what we have is a system of stratification and exclusion that runs through the central elite institutions of school and work in our society, in which those institutions exclude middle and working class families and children. Now, they exclude them not by any intent, but by sheerly uh, the contingent fact of what it takes to jump through all the hoops you need to jump through to land in Yale or Princeton or Stanford or Harvard. Exactly. You know, Stanford admits fewer than 5% of its applicants. That means that if you're applying to college and anything serious ever went wrong in your childhood, you know, parents lost jobs, you had to move all of a sudden, somebody died and you had to pick up some burden to earn some income for the family, you're not going to have a record that puts you in the top 5% of the already elite pool that tries to apply. So that it's just, I mean, obviously there are exceptional people. There are exceptional people always. But unless you're incredibly exceptional, you won't be able to get ahead if you don't have a lot of privilege behind you. And then this privileged class, as you said earlier in the conversation, asserts that they've earned their advantage and that they have got there on the merits and that those who are disadvantaged deserve to be disadvantaged because they're not as hardworking, they're not as skilled, they're not as virtuous. And now those who are excluded get appropriately angry and resentful and turn against the institutions, the schools, the professional companies, the forms of expertise that people on the outside correctly think are underwriting their disadvantage and exclusion. And a populist like Trump exploits that resentment. And a lot of people on the left think, how can class resentment go with Trump rather than against him, given that he was born to a massive inheritance? And the answer is, yeah, he inherited a lot of money, but he is not part of this system of training, education, and professional certification that people correctly see as the principal source of their exclusion. It's not his inheritance. That's maybe unjust, maybe not unjust. We can disagree about it, but it's on the margins of our society. Whereas all the doctors and lawyers and bankers and CEOs and elite managers who are training their kids like nobody else can and getting them into the best schools and buying houses in the best neighborhoods and getting them into the best colleges, that's the system that is keeping most Americans down. And so the populist resentment turns against it, in some sense, accurately. So what is the alternative to meritocracy? Well, it can't be 
aristocracy and a caste system based on breeding or on race or on gender. That's, I think, important to say out up front. This, you know, if this is a, a going concern as a social and political project, it can't be backward-looking. It has to be forward-looking. Let me just put a few more pieces in play here. So if we continue to want, as we do, to make breakthroughs on a hundred fronts with respect to specialized knowledge and technology and you know, just human ingenuity and creativity. Now, granted, this, you know, this landscape is continually shifting, and therefore we're continually finding ourselves reprioritizing certain human skills. But it doesn't seem to me in the cards that we will no longer care about differences in human skill. And many of these skills require lots of training to develop. I mean, people have natural capacities, undoubtedly, but then there's you know, an, an immense contribution of culture and education to develop these capacities. And these capacities get differentially rewarded. You know, as you say, it used to be that if you could throw a boomerang and not kill one of your friends in the process, yeah, yeah, exactly. you're going to be much prized. But now, you know, if you can code, you uh, more or less have a guaranteed path to at least some wealth. And, you know, maybe that'll change. In fact, you know, if we get AI in the near term that codes better than any person, well, then all of a sudden those, those apes will be no longer valued for their abilities and they'll have to pivot to something else. But it is, in fact, true that there's a constellation of cognitive abilities and kind of attendant personality qualities, you know, the things like, you know, conscientiousness that are, you know, part of the seemingly necessary toolkit to function in the technological society of that we have built and, and are continuing to build. And yes, there's an outsized reward going to being in the far end of the distribution with respect to those qualities and not so much with respect to sheer physical strength or something else that would have been the most valuable characteristic you could have found in another context. And again, this is, is always shifting, and it may in fact be that 20 years from now, the ability to be a, a great actor will be you know, far more valuable than being a great technologist of any sort, because you know, we will have produced algorithms that beat us on, in every one of those chess games. But now, we could easily create a list of the things you want or would wish you had if you wanted to just add value to the machine here. And those are going to be rewarded disparately with respect to all possible dolings of resources to people. Are you envisioning an alternative to that? Just who should get into the best college to study X when only a certain number of people can study X there and X is unambiguously valuable to more or less everyone. Right. I think that's exactly the right question to ask. And the answer is that we need to be clear-eyed and deliberate about just which skills, what kinds of training, with what degree of eliteness or exclusivity or intensity, really are in the general interest. So, you know, we've had enormously rising economic inequality over the past 50 years. 
we have not had a lot of economic growth. We've not had a lot of increase in productivity, what economists call total factor productivity, which is a measure mm -hmm. of technological innovation. We've done a lot worse on those measures, actually, than we did between 1950 and 1970. Yeah, this is going to be very counterintuitive for some people because right. the bright, shiny object of Silicon Valley is distracting. So right. maybe you could say a little bit more about you, that. You see it. It's Silicon Valley. It's finance. You see certain forms of seemingly rapid technological advancement. But these are not places that necessarily produce an enormous amount of increased social well-being or growth. And so what we need is a careful, deliberate eye to what kinds of skills our society needs. Let me give some examples of this idea to sort of answer your question, starting with ones that I think are easy for me and ending at ones that are hardest for me, just to be fair. So the easy ones are feels like law and finance. We've had enormous innovation in law and finance, set aside Silicon Valley, derivatives, securitization. But there is no, literally no evidence that our super skilled, super elite financial sector produces any increase in economic productivity or well-being for the society. It's interesting, people don't realize that from 1950 to 1970, finance was neither better paid nor better educated than the rest of the economy. Mm -hmm. Whereas today, it sucks up the most educated people in the society and pays them vast amounts. Law is the same. If you look at other countries' legal systems, a system like Germany has much less elite or competitive legal education and lawyering, but produces more effective justice at a lower cost. So there are some fields where what we're doing is we're creating intense training, genuine expertise, enormous innovation, but the innovation is just producing greater private wealth for the people who have the skills rather than a greater social product. I think that's true in management also, and we could talk about it, but the hardest case for me is a case like medicine, because surely medical innovations produced by super-trained, super-creative people cure diseases, make us all better off. And of course they do. But even there, our system of meritocratic, hierarchical, exclusive training leaves a lot of social good on the table. So take heart health as an example. Very well-trained, very brilliant doctors and scientists have figured out how to transplant hearts, how to build an artificial heart. But here are some things we don't know about heart health. We don't know whether it's better for your heart over the long run to exercise really intensively for one hour once a week, moderately for half an hour three times a week, or just always to walk and to take the stairs. We don't know the answer to that question. Hmm. If we did know the answer to that question, and if we knew how to train people to do whatever is optimal, that would be a lot better for our population's heart health than the ability to transplant hearts for the very small number of people who get access to the heart and the surgeon. And to deliver health care on the second model, we need an army of public health workers, nurse practitioners, exercise therapists, dietitians to help people live healthier lives. But we're not training those people, and we're not paying those people. 
and we're instead concentrating our resources in the most elite sector of the education. And I don't mean to deny that in the medical case, those super elite workers produce real social value. I think that they do. In the finance and law case, I'm not so sure that they do. But in the medicine case, I think that they do. But it's not clear that that's the best way to spend our training resources or our medical dollars. And so we might do much better by massively investing in an expansion of education for many, many, many more people. You know, between 1970 and 2000 or so, maybe 1990, we incredibly dramatically increased the share of Americans with college degrees. We've stopped increasing that share. Instead, what we're doing is we're concentrating our education resources more and more intensively on a narrower and narrower elite. And I Mm. don't think that's optimal, even if innovation is in general a good thing. So that's the kind of answer I'd give. And, And obviously, to get this right, you have to get the details right. You have to go case by case. You have to focus on sectors and industries and degrees and schools and and really work this through. But it did take us 50 years to get from the mid-century system to the hyper-stratified meritocracy that we have now. And so it will take us a long time, even if we really muster the will to do it, to unwind that and to get to a fairer and, I think, also more efficient form of education and work. Okay, well, let's just take a university-eye view of this problem. So if you had complete control over one of the nation's best universities, you know, Yale, Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, you know, just take anything in the top 10, and you could just decide to change their policies. Let's start at admission, right? So take the SAT. What weight do we put on a test like the SAT? Yeah, so I'm not a big fan of the SAT as, a, as an admissions criterion. I don't think it It is the part of the application process that I think is, in fact, most responsive to parental resources and privilege. So I would downplay or eliminate it or use it instead as a way of identifying able and high-achieving students from circumstances that are not as privileged by, for example, comparing an applicant's SAT score to the other SAT scores of similarly situated applicants or something like that. Right. But, but what I would really do is something much more radical, which is this. If you look at the Ivy League, it spends almost twice as much per pupil per year today as it did in 2000. It's important to say that again. The Ivy League today spends about twice as much per pupil per year as it did in 2000, when it was already a pretty gold-plated education. Mm. So there is no reason why the Ivy League can't educate twice as many students. And there's no reason why it can't take the bulk of the new students that it educates from outside of the elite so that its student body comes more nearly to resemble the socioeconomic distribution of the country as a whole. And Except if reducing the socioeconomic status or increasing the footprint there of the student body is synonymous with now admitting students who can't perform as well by whatever previous meritocratic calculus we were using. I mean, one doesn't put people in educational circumstances they are likely to fail in or reduce the standards of performance within the institution itself such that no one is getting the same education they used to get at Harvard, say. And isn't it also devaluing 
the credentialing you know, slash social signaling aspect of uh, getting a degree from one of these institutions, which one could argue is really the the truly scarce resource there. Right. You know, you can read the great books without ever getting a degree, and you can know you've read them, but we put a lot on the difference between between right. doing it yourself and and doing it at Harvard. Sure, sure. So, on the first point that people would come who weren't prepared for the kind of institution that it is. You know, this is not a reason not to do it. It's just a reason not to start at the Ivy League. You know, what one would want to do is massively to expand investment in education from pre-kindergarten on and to shrink the gap between what the rich invest in their kids and everybody else does. We are one of only three rich countries in the world in which the public school system spends more per pupil on rich kids than on poor kids, and that's simply unconscionable. So, mm. you know, we should start earlier and have a broader, better educated group of applicants. But that doesn't totally eliminate the thrust of your of your concern, which is real, and that's why the view I have of education is connected to the view I have of work which is if you believe that a highly stratified, exclusive kind of education is necessary for taking a small number of the most able people and giving them the most training and promoting their creativity the most, so they can then go out into the workforce and invent marvelous things that make everybody better off, then an educational proposal like the one I have will seem extremely risky and costly and possibly self-defeating. But if you think that what these super smart, super trained, super creative people tend to do is they tend to go out into the workforce and invent new things which are incredibly creative and impressive, but mostly which just concentrate wealth in the elite and don't have a very high social product. So they invent the leveraged buyout. They invent the mortgage-backed security. They invent techniques, the poison pill. They invent forms of arguments concerning exhaustion of administrative remedies that enable large concentrations of capital to prevent justified claimants from coming after them in court. They invent open-heart surgery but neglect exercise and heart health. Then it turns out that even if the system of education I'm proposing does reduce a little bit the extravagant training at the very top, that doesn't make the society worse off. Instead, it redirects creativity at the places where the social product is biggest. And I suppose that's the kind of thought that I have in mind. So to, to believe my view, you have to believe not just my claims about education, but also my claims about work and production, and that they fit together. And um, you know that's to be honest, both a strength and a weakness of the view. It's a strength of the view in that it provides a comprehensive way of looking at our economic and social order. It's a weakness of the view that it has lots of component claims, and if you get off the train at any point, you get off the train. And, and that's just that's the way this kind of argument goes. Couldn't you just bypass all that is controversial in your view, and even even this basic critique of meritocracy, if we collectively completely reprioritized early education and you know, all the way up to the point where people would apply to college. So if we just 
I mean, I've often fantasized, I, I have no idea how we would do this, but how is it that we could make the education of elementary school children and middle school and high school kids just the highest or among the highest prestige jobs we have, right? So we would pay these teachers extraordinarily well. They would be very competitive to become you know, a second grade school teacher. And we would dump an extraordinary amount of money into that system. And on the exit side of that black box, you would have the same meritocratic standards that we currently have. We might have a separate conversation about whether the standards are, are what they should be, but you wouldn't have this disparity in access to a great education because it would, it would more or less all be great from day one. So uh, I think that there's a sort of an empirical question there about how much spending is needed before the quality of education stops growing as you spend more. I think I said earlier, you know, the gap between what is spent in a poor public school district and a middle class district is about $4,000 a year per pupil. The gap between what's spent in a middle-class district and one of these super-fancy private schools is about $60,000 a year, so about 15 times bigger. We could, by spending more public money, credibly close the poor middle-class gap, and we could improve the education the middle-class gets. We could not bring the whole middle-class up to the Forbes 20 private school number. It's just too expensive. And, and that means that the question arises, are those private schools just wasting money? Or does the educational system that you envision in order really to provide the kind of education you're talking about require spending that sum of money on everybody? And I think it's a little bit of both. But I, I do think that in a competitive labor market, there are private returns to incredibly intensive investments in education long after any credible public story about having an educated populace runs out. And so people are competing with each other to, to get ahead in rank without there being any absolute improvement. And, and, and that's why I think we need something a little bit more aggressive that really restores solidarity and a kind of shared educational experience among the middle class and the rich. Yeah, well, it's all fascinating. So just a couple more questions on how um, a university could take any of this advice. So when you say that these colleges should double their enrollment, I mean, that imposes immediate architectural demands, unless you're envisioning a lot of online enrollment, which gives the same credential. And then, then the question is, why not 10 exit or right. 100 exit if it's going to be online? Right. So. On the architecture, they're starting to do it, actually. You know, Princeton and Yale are, are building more colleges and dorms and, and growing their classes. They've done it before. When Yale went co-ed in 1970, 1969, it dramatically increased the size of its class. So it's doable. These are wealthy institutions. It's not something that they can do on a dime or in six weeks, but over the course of a half a decade, they could do it and they could do it and have teachers teach more students. You know, this is not a proposal that's particularly popular in the faculty lounge, mm -hmm. but 
there's no reason why I should get to live the rarefied life that I do. So it's doable. On the online side, I'm a bit of a skeptic about online education, although my experience teaching online during the pandemic made me refine my skepticism. I used to think you needed to be in the same place to be successful. I no longer think that. But I do think that you need close attention between the professor and students. The, the thing I think that makes me able to educate my students is that I read their work product closely. And I could read twice as much student work product, and my job would be less cushy, but it would be completely doable. But I couldn't read a hundred times as much student work product and have conversations with them. I mean, it's an interesting thing about education, which is that we really haven't figured out a good way to deliver understanding except through close intellectual engagement of the sort you and I are having now. Yeah. One conversation at a time. And I think that's the model and, and that limits our ability to provide education, you know, scaled up times a hundred or a thousand. But I don't think it limits our ability to provide education doubled. And if we doubled the enrollment of our universities, not just the most elite ones, but all the way down the hierarchy and made the gaps in the hierarchy less big, we would have a much better educated, more secure, and more economically productive society. Well, so I'm guessing it's a simple answer to the question about what to do with legacy admissions. We get rid of them, right? I'm against them. Yeah, I think that those are, in my view, just unconscionable, especially given the fact that rich graduates of these colleges have all these other ways of already advantaging their children. But then practically speaking, isn't this expected to be disastrous for fundraising? I mean, I got to think that's why it's not already the norm at these colleges. You know, it's interesting. Legacy admissions have become less prominent in these colleges over the past decades. They're more prominent than I think moral decency allows, but they're less prominent than they used to be. By less prominent, you mean the percentage of who get admitted? No. Though this is the really interesting phenomenon, which is the, the benefit that being a legacy gives you has gotten smaller. But at the same time, the concentration of children of rich parents who go there has gone up. And that's because the elite is finding all these other ways to advantage its children. Right. And, and you know, I should say these colleges on the fundraising side, if you take the 10 biggest university endowments in America, and look at their growth over the past 30 or 40 years, and just extend that growth train out into the future, and you look at U.S. household wealth over the past 30 or 40 years and extend its growth out into the future, sometime in the 22nd century, those 10 universities would own all of America. Right. So it's not that they're hurting financially. I'm going to guess that's not going to happen, so something exactly. else is going to happen. And I think that, that the pitch, if one's talking to university administrators and you have something like my view, you exactly say, that's not going to happen. So that the path that you think you want to be on, which is one of maintaining your exclusivity, maintaining your wealth, maintaining your very small number of students, will be cut off by something. And the question is, is it cut off by something that's consistent with your values of an 
educated, open, fair society? Or is it cut off by something else? And you have a, an ability now to act in the service of your values by becoming less exclusive and more fair. And so you should seize it while you can. That's the kind of argument I think that, that universities could, over time, be moved by. What about the tax-exempt status of schools? So my view is that in a world in which they're this rich and educate overwhelmingly rich kids, you know, while it's not true that 80% of the students at Yale had parents who went to Yale, it is true that a very high percentage of the students at Yale had parents who went to one of another small set of elite colleges, so that the set of elite universities as a whole functions as a club, and it functions as a club for the rich. And as long as it functions in that way, it shouldn't be taxed as a charity. That's a huge subsidy. And, and just to give you a sense of the size of the subsidy, somebody calculated recently that Princeton University's tax exemption amounted to a public subsidy to Princeton of $100,000 per student per year. Hmm. And compare that to a public subsidy to the State University of New Jersey at Rutgers of about 12500 per student per year and a public subsidy to Essex County Community College of about $2,500 per student per year. So the super rich kids at Princeton get a public subsidy 40 times as big as the middle and working class kids at Essex County Community College. It's very hard to see how that's fair. Mm. Well, so Daniel, what do you think is going to transform our thinking on this topic and actually lead to change on the ground. I mean, do you think it's a matter of persuading the elites that this change has to happen? You know, if only through a self-serving lens that the pitchforks are coming and they actually need to get on the right side of history before they're dragged onto it? Or do you think this change is going to come before the elites are bought in? I think that there, there are three forces. One is relatively new. I would not underestimate the political importance of the recognition of who is an essential worker in the pandemic, mm. both for the rest of society to realize who's really essential and, and that those who are essential are not getting paid. Second, young people in general are much less wedded to the meritocratic system than their parents were because for their parents' generation, meritocracy meant the fight against racism and sexism and homophobia. Powerfully, it meant people should be admitted regardless of their identity. And it meant an energetic and vibrant elite that would make each generation richer than, one, than the one before it. Whereas for young people today, meritocracy means structural exclusion. I can't get into the school or college I want and jobs are disappearing. And so young people are much more engaged and much more clear-eyed, I think, about what's going on than older people. And finally, I think elites will come around, and partly it's fear of the pitchforks, but another part of it, and this is not something we spend a lot of time talking about, but the book spends some time on, is that meritocratic competition means that Having rich parents is almost a necessary condition for getting ahead, but it's not close to a sufficient condition. Right. And elite kids are trained and tested and supervised and surveilled, and they jump through hoops 
their whole lives and they're constantly frightened of losing the race and being excluded. And then they finally graduate from Harvard Business School or Yale Law School and they take a job at Goldman Sachs or at Cravath, Swain and Moore. And they work 90 hours a week and they're frightened that they're going to get fired or are not going to make partner. And then they make partner and they still have to work 90 hours a week. And their kids are now in the position they were in and they're terrified as parents that their kids are going to lose caste. And at the same time, they're so rich that if they could take the trade between, you know, give up a third of their income in exchange for getting out of the rat race, they'd be so much better off. And and so I think elites are also beginning to realize that this system doesn't serve them well, partly because they're afraid of the populist mob, but partly because they realize that they're afraid of each other and what they're doing to themselves. And if they can be shown a coordinated path of sort of mutual disarmament that would make the whole society better off, that would be in their interest also. So I think Mm -hmm. they have reason to be open to this, and maybe it's optimistic, but I tend to think if people have reason to do something, it increases the chance that they'll do it. It's interesting. As I'm having this conversation with you, and I'm I'm imagining how listeners will perceive this argument and listeners in, in various economic situations, I can't help but feel that there's there's a concern, personally, I can own this as well, that there's a concern about personal hypocrisy here. So like one thing, whenever I've argued about the importance of wealth inequality, I've often been hit with the charge, well, if you want to give more of your money to the government, you're free to do that, right? Of course, you can just cut you know, an extra check to the treasury if you're so concerned that there's not enough money in the system. But the reason why that is a bizarre rejoinder and actually isn't teasing out real hypocrisy on on my side or on the side of anyone who would argue that wealth inequality is a problem, is that no one wants to make a pointless and unshared sacrifice. It seems to me that someone could agree with everything you've said and still be motivated to pay the minimum tax that they legally can when tax time rolls around. And yet I think many people their discomfort with all of this is somewhere in this area where there's personal hypocrisy or at least the perception of it lurking in the background. These are all fine words, but you know, how much money are you actually giving away? And part of it is a, I think there's a failure of imagination around what you just described, which is a, if the playing field itself or the game itself changes so that everyone is now exposed to a new set of norms and a new set of expectations, that changes how any specific change in a person's individual circumstance will be perceived, right? And this is somewhat inchoate a concern, but I just feel like there there is something different about it happening at the level of the system than one individual being impressed by the, the ethical argument here and then having to grapple with their individual response to it. So I I think I want to agree entirely and just observe that there are two formulations of that thought. The first is that this is an argument about structures and systems, and it's both an argument that doesn't try to cast blame on any individual, either in the elite or outside of the elite, and an argument that suggests that 
individual action is not the solution here. The solution is coordinated public policy. And so in that sense, the thing to do is to agitate politically insofar as we act politically for a better set of policies, for a better set of educational policies, for a better set of labor market policies, for a fairer tax system, and, and so on. And there's no inconsistency in thinking, I want these policies for all of us, but I'm not going to act unilaterally to act as if they were there when they're not there. Right. So that's, that's one version of this. But I think there's also another version of this, which is sort of a similar kind of argument, just in the sort of individual conscience or realm of the individual mind and thought, which is just to say, and I'll just admit this for me, you know, I, I'm a product of this system. I'm an agent of this system. So I benefited enormously from having professional parents. I, I went to public school, but I had professional parents and uh, having fancy degrees. And I now educate elite kids. And it's no part of this argument, either in the book or the conversation that we've been having, to hold myself out as an ideal of generosity or honor or altruism. Rather, it's an argument that makes a series of claims about what the economy is like, what our society is like, how things work to decide who gets ahead and who doesn't, and the social and individual costs of the inequality that we have. And those stand or fall totally apart from whoever is saying them at the moment. So in that sense, I think that the charge to be levied against someone like me is, is a charge of immorality, but not hypocrisy. Mm. That is to say, I'm in this system, I'm no better or worse than anybody else in the system. And if you think the position that I have is undeserved and culpable, you may well be right. But you can think that because you agree with my argument, not you're thinking that about me undermines my argument. Right, right. Well, it's fascinating, Daniel. And this problem, needless to say, is not going away anytime soon. So you, you were definitely a man of the moment. And uh, thank you for the work you've done. It's really a pleasure to get you on the podcast. Thank you for the conversation, which I have to say has been both at the same time unusually gentle and unusually incisive. So I'm grateful for the questioning. Nice. Thanks very much. <laughs>